Yahweh and the Divine Assembly. The category used in both Mesopotamia and Syria texts refer to groups of deities as a council or assembly. This feature is dominant in the Mesopotamia and Ugaritic texts. It is no surprise to find references in the Bible using similar language. As a West Semitic language, Ugaritic is closely related to Hebrew Bible, sharing a good deal of vocabulary, as well as relating to forms of words, structures of sentences, and the way the language is arranged. When closely examined, many of the Ugaritic tablets were found to contain words and phrases describing a council of gods that have verbal expressions parallel to the Hebrew Bible. The Ugaritic Divine Council was led by El, the same word used in the Hebrew Bible for deity and as the proper name for the God of Israel. There are explicit references to a council or assembly of El, in some cases overlapping word for word with those in the Hebrew Bible. One such text that presents Yahweh in a council setting is Psalm 82 and 1. God, Elohim, stands in the divine assembly among the divinities, Elohim. He pronounces judgment. Here the figure in heaven is God who takes his place in the assembly, and the assembly consists of all the gods of the world, for all the gods are condemned to death in verse 6. I myself presumed that you are God, sons of the Most High. Yet like humans you will die and fall like any prince. Then comes a voice speaking loudly, calling for God to take his place as judge of all the earth in verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the world, for you inherit all the nations. Each of these sons has a different nation assigned as his patrimony or family inheritance, and therefore serves as its ruler. Yet, verse 6 calls on Yahweh to take to himself the traditional inheritance of all the other gods, thereby making Israel and all the world the inheritance of Israel's gods, or God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 and 9, also presents this view of the divine arrangement of the world, preserved in Greek, which is the Septuagint, and the Dead Sea Scroll. When the Most High allotted peoples for inheritance, when he divided up humanity, he fixed the boundaries for peoples, according to the number of the divine sons. For Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, his own inheritance. Mark S. Smith contends the traditional Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, or the MT, perhaps reflects a discomfort with this polytheistic the theology of Israel. For it shows not divine sons, Beni Elohim, as in the Greek and the Dead Sea Scrolls, but sons of Israel, Beni Israel. E. Tov labels the MT text here an anti-polytheistic alteration. The texts of the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls 
show Israelite polytheism that focused on the central importance of Yahweh for Israel within the larger scheme of the world. Yet this larger scheme provides a place for the other gods of the other nations in the world. Smith says, It is shown in Exodus 15, verse 11, and 1 Kings 22 and verse 19, there was a multitude of deities in Israelite polytheism. With the host of heaven in attendance, the divine assembly of Yahweh is full. Exodus 15 and verse 11 says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? And 1 Kings 22 and 19, Micaiah said, Therefore, Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and his left. Archaeologist and historian William G. Deaver also argues strongly for a case that Israel's religion began as a polytheistic and evolved into monotheism. He says the assumption here was that from the time of Moses, before the conquest and settlement of Canaan, there had existed a pure Yahweh monotheism. All later reforms thus attempted to recall wayward Israel to its original religion, which was not simply an idea, but the reality from the formative years onward. Deaver believes this is a false notion held by many biblical commentators and theologians. However, Michael Heiser, who holds a PhD in Hebrew Bible and Semitic studies, firmly holds to the view that plural Elohim does not mean polytheism. There is no basis for concluding that the biblical writers would have viewed Yahweh as no better than any other Elohim. A biblical writer would not have presumed that Yahweh could be defeated on any given day by another Elohim, or that another Elohim, why not any of them, had the same set of attributes. This is polytheistic thinking. It is not the biblical picture. The biblical writers speak of Yahweh in ways that telegraph their belief in his uniqueness and incomparability. Perhaps this necessary suggests that neither polytheism nor monotheism best describes Israel's religion. No one among ancient Israelites would have considered themselves monotheist or polytheist. Monotheism is a relatively modern concept coined in the mid-17th century by the British philosopher Henry Moore. The problem with such categories is retrojection into biblical texts, a singularity of divinity that the Bible itself does not claim for ancient Israel. If you would look up the dictionary definition of enotheism, monolatry, and monotheism, you would get you will get the impression that the use of monotheism is used in a way not supported by the dictionary the idea of an exclusive belief in and worship of one god and the denial of even the existence of other gods with no reality at all 
is not supported by dictionaries. A narrow definition of monotheism is the belief in the existence of only one God that created the world and intervenes in the world. A distinction may be made between exclusive monotheism and both inclusive and diverse monotheism. Monotheism is distinguished from enotheism. Enotheism, a religious belief in which the believer worships one God without denying that others may worship different gods with equal validity. Monolarity is the recognition of the existence of many gods, but with the consistent worship of only one God and not allowing others to worship other gods. Kyle MacArthur, Jr., an Old Testament scholar who is best known for his work on the books of Samuel, offers significant insight on family religion. Israel went through a process of ethnic self-identification when it established itself in Canaan. It involved Israel's drawing boundary lines between itself and other people. The Israelites were those who worshipped Yahweh, the Ammonites were those who worshipped Melchom, the god of Ammon. The Moabites were those who worshipped Chismos, the god of Moab. And the Edomites were those who worshipped Quaz, the god of Edom. The gods Al and Baal received the greatest popularity as family gods. Primary devotion to a chief national god was a pattern in the Iron Age Palestine. This suggests that Yahwism and Israel emerged at the same time as part of the same process. Somewhere in the sparsely populated hills of late Bronze Age, there was a people called Israel. When newcomers, non-Israelites, settled in the hills after the Bronze Age was over, at the beginning of the Iron Age, they joined themselves with the ancient Israelite group. The mixed group of newcomers obviously brought their family shrines and gods. The focus of religious life was local manifestations of family religion. Family identity was anchored in the cult of the ancestors and the worship of local gods. Carl van der Torn, an historian at the University of Amsterdam, did extensive research on the earliest Israelites. He made outstanding observations about the structure of the early Israelite society and how it was transformed by the establishment of the monarchy under Saul. With the rise of the state, there also came with it a state religion. The religion of the state was an extension of Saul's family religion. Saul being devoted to Yahweh as his, as his family god, he promoted Yahweh as the patron god of the new state. From now on, the two, family, clan, and state religion, would be in competition, reducing family religion to the private realm, the religion of the state being the public realm. To unify state control over its subjects, the authorities tried to bring the traditional family religion within the realm of the state. The cult of Baal was admitted to the state temples. 
And El became identified with Yahweh. Now the fall of Samaria in 621, the collapse of the northern kingdom, and the subsequent fall of the southern kingdom in 597 B.C. brought about the end of both Israelite state religion and Israelite family religion. The Israelites' refugees were a people who lost its traditional badge of identity. The earlier, the earlier symbols of identification, the homestead, the local high places, ancestral graves, local shrines, and national sanctuaries were inaccessible. The Israelites looked for a new symbol. God himself becomes accessible not by means of rituals, festivals, images, or holy place, but under the form of personal devotion to the written words. The development of monotheism came late in the period of the monarchs, if not later still, after ancient history was over. For the majority, monotheism had not been the reality for the ancient Israelites, or the ancient Israelites. Psalm 29 calls divine beings to join in praise of Yahweh. Job chapter 1 and 2 presents divine beings coming before God, including Satan. According to the, accordingly, to use biblical texts to establish monotheism, or even monolatry, historically before the 7th century BC is difficult. Most of the references to monotheism comes from the exilic period, or the captivity period, or later, Jeremiah 16 and verse 19 points to the late pre-exilic period. Michael Heiser contends that another misguided strategy is to argue that the statements in the Old Testament that have God saying, there is none beside me, mean that other gods or other Elohims exist. He says, this isn't the case. These denial statements do not deny that other Elohim exist. Rather, they deny that any Elohim compares to Yahweh. Exodus 15 verse 11 begs the question, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? 1 King chapter 8, 23. O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in the heavens above, or on earth below. Psalm 97 and 1. For you, O Yahweh, are most high over all the earth. You are highly exalted above all gods. The statements, they are statements of incomparability. This denial language referred to above shows up in the Bible. Isaiah 47 and 8. Zephaniah chapter 2 and 15 have Babylon and Nineveh saying, There is none besides me. Are we to believe that the point of the, of the phrase is to declare that no other city exists except Babylon or Nineveh? That would be absurd. The point of the statement is that Babylon and Nineveh considered themselves incomparable as though no other city could measure up to them. 
This is precisely the point when these same phrases are used of other gods. They cannot measure up to Yahweh. Those who want to deny that other Elohims did not exist are at odds with the supernatural worldview of the biblical writers. When we began this journey in my first episode, I shared with you that we would be venturing into the minds of an ancient people and how that experience alone will change the way we approach the Bible. Sometimes individuals may be blinded by traditions and it's difficult to, to have to rethink, reevaluate, and reorder everything we have learned about the Bible. I have been a student of the Bible for many years, and the more I study history and the Bible, the more intriguing and fascinating I find the journey. The more I learn about the ancient Near East, the more appreciation I have for my Christian heritage and the complexity of the biblical worldview. My advice to you is to let the Bible be what it is meant to be. Be open to the realm of the supernatural world, all the ancient Israelites and the people of antiquity. Seek to understand the biblical writers and keep in mind that the content of the Bible needs to make sense in its own context, whether or not it makes sense in ours.